You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not break your oath. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Good morning to you. So I got here at 7.30. When did you get here? But uh, when I got arrived here this morning, I could hear the birds chirping loudly and of many different melodies. I got to see the geese taking off from the, the water that's nearby, the live you don't even know exists, uh, as there's a quarry nearby. And, uh, and then I took notice of all the trees budding and flowers that were around and my eyes were watering off my face. Uh, allergy season has begun for me, and uh, so if you are concerned if I sneeze or cough or whatever, it's connected to that. Uh, but uh, so I am safe, at least I believe I'm safe to be around this morning. Uh, anyway, I'm going to have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to continue our series called Bonafide, which refers to... Uh, Basically going after this idea of what uh, Pharisees said was a good faith, but rather exposing it as superficial. And uh, so we want to have a bona fide faith, and I believe that Jesus outlines that by through the Beatitudes, which is the first 12 verses of, of chapter 5. And then he goes into the, this series of statements, which we just heard on that video, that you've heard that it's said. Some of those were laws, some of them were, were sayings. But people abided by them, and they assumed that if you live by those, that's what's going to gain you approval and affirmation from God. And so uh, what we're looking at is that Jesus undoes that. He says, like, no, it goes beyond that. It's not the actions that matter most. It's the, the inward heart behind those actions that matter. And so today, as we, we look in chapter 6, we're going to look at some things where Jesus, again, Highlight some stuff that can be good, but can also have a negative side to it. I want to begin <coughs> with a little series, uh, a story, if you will, um, from my younger years. A lot of people in this community only know me not as pastor at LAFC, but they know me as coach. I've coached a lot of baseball in the area, so I've, I've taught for, uh, coached for several years, and so there are people that only know me as that. And when I interact with them in the society, they'll say, hey, coach, or coach Hunt, or coach Tony, and, uh, and, and so I, the context is immediate. That's how they know me. Uh, when I got out of college, I was coaching at the, in the high school ranks uh, for several years, and then I started having children, and, and then got out of coaching for a season, but then my youngest uh, son began playing baseball at age five, so I began to coach again, and followed him up and through, and let me tell you, there is a learning curve from going from coaching high school baseball to coaching five-year-olds that when they're in the outfield and you're talking to the infielders, they're chasing things. I have no idea what's in the air. It's a little bit of butterflies and 
chasing and swatting things. It, it was a very big learning curve for me to go from coaching high school players to that, but I enjoyed it. And, and I found uh, great uh, fulfillment in it. And it's a way for me to connect with people that otherwise I wouldn't know. But there's something about when you're coaching and people only know you is that they assume your history. So I did play baseball. I wouldn't be able to coach it very well if I didn't have some exposure to it. But based on their perception of me, they might assume that I was a very good baseball player. And the reality is, I was just an okay baseball player. And in fact, uh, I, you know, I started in high school, but I was really just kind of that, that role player that filled a spot in the lineup. And, and, you know, I was never usually at the top of the lineup, more towards the ladder. And this really exposes how good of a baseball player I am when I tell you that in all my years of playing baseball, I only hit one home run. And that was at age 12 in a little league field in a small town in, in Midwestern Kansas. And, uh, and, and that home, uh, and that, God bless you. I can't even go beyond that. So God bless you. Allergy season has arrived. And my heart stopped for a moment. Um, but anyway, going back to the home run that I was referring to, uh, I can tell you a lot about that day. I can tell you that I used a bat that was wooden, that had a splinter in it, as in it was cracked. And so I had tacked three little nails into it to hold it together. And that would not pass today because today they check the bats. They have to be certified and all that. This bat was about as ancient as could be. And that was the bat I hit the ball out of the park with. And so as I am, uh, I hit that ball and I'm rounding the bases, I am shocked that I hit the ball out. Because I've never done it before. It was not something I expected to do. And I'm running around like doing this like, are you kidding me? I just hit the ball out of the park, and I'm walking around, and I'm looking at, at, the, at my team as I'm coming around, and they're like, like doing this as well. I come across the plate, they're high-fiving me, and I remember one of the coaches saying to me, well, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, I, I didn't see that either. And, and then, of course, the natural thing when you're 12 years old, you're looking for dad and mom. Like, are they smiling? Are they proud? Looking for the approval. And, and I'm looking over, and, you know, they're smiling, and they're shaking their heads like everybody else. Like, didn't see that coming. And because uh, going into that, I had been in a hitting slump and had not been hitting very well. And so all of a sudden, I come out with a bang, if you will. Now, what's interesting about that game I cannot tell you to this day if we won that game. I just told you a lot of detail that I can remember. I can remember faces. I can remember the feeling. I can tell you exactly where the ball went out. It was right next to a telephone pole outside the field in between that and the scoreboard. I've walked there. I've taken my son there. This is where it landed. I can tell you all kinds of details. But I cannot tell you who won the game. I can't tell you any other detail. I can't tell you where I played in the field. I can't tell you who was where that day. I can't tell you the pitcher I hit it off of. But I can tell you I hit a home run. You see, there's something about human nature that says that when something happens good in your life, you can get very consumed in the moment and lose perspective of anything else that's happening around you. You see... 
all good things can have a downside. We can make them something that we hold in our own hand and take too much pleasure in it, if you will. A story that I'd like to share in this moment that will lead into our text is that even with spiritual things, good spiritual things, things that God would celebrate, God even commands and encourages, can become acts of sin. This became all too real to me when in my first year of ministry, a mentor of mine who had been in ministry for years had been sharing with me some of the changes that he was making in his ministry journey. After years of serving with a parachurch organization, working with teenagers, he began to have a vision of doing stuff where maybe we need to start getting churches working together in youth ministry. Instead of having youth ministry parachurch separated from the church, what if we put a lot of our efforts helping the church work together to reach teenagers? So he shares this with the, those who are in charge of that parachurch organization. And the vision did not resonate with them. So he broke away and began to do this on his own. Getting youth pastors to talk to each other from different churches. Getting them together to pray for their students. Getting them together to begin to reach schools together. And a movement began that took over the whole city. A revival was happening among students, among youth pastors, among youth ministries in churches. It was beautiful. The parachurch organization's leadership took notice, realized maybe this is something we need to be a part of. So they invited my mentor back into the fold. Things went very well. And within a couple years, the leadership of that parachurch organization writes a book to which I knew these people they were all people I grew up around so I bought the book and read it and in this book the leader of that parachurch organization took credit for this movement that was going on in the city doesn't even reference my mentor that had built this picture that God put upon his heart Towards the end of the book, there's a mention that one of the people involved with this, and it mentions my mentor by name as an example, but not as a key player. I was angry by the time I finished this book. So I contacted my mentor, and, and, and we're sitting together over a, a table, and, and we're talking, and I said, have you read this book? He shook his head. Yes, he had. And I said, are you okay with what it says. He doesn't respond. I said, well, you do know that he's taking credit for something that God did through you. And then finally, my mentor, who was always usually slow to speak, finally spoke up in that moment. He goes, Tony, why does it matter who gets the credit when it's God who's doing the work? I wanted to fight for him. You see, it's not fair that somebody else takes credit for another person's work. 
But that statement by my mentor exposed my own heart. I can go a long ways without receiving credit for things that go on around me that I might be a part of. But when my pride kicks in is when somebody tries to take credit for what I have been doing. So I can go a long time with somebody saying, not saying, hey, attaboy, Tony, way to go. Thanks for doing this, or way to go, way to lead that. Love how you did that. I can go a long time without hearing that and be okay. But if I was part of releasing a vision of something and making it happen, and then I hear somebody else starting to take credit for it, ooh, Tony's pride kicks in. And I want to correct the moment. You understand what I feel? You've been there? It's like some good things can happen, and, and you, know, you can be okay with it. But, man, when somebody else tries to take the credit for maybe something that somebody else or even you might have done, wow, there's just something that hits hard in that moment. See, what I've learned over time, especially by the time now that I've reached the ripe old age of 50, and that was a confession right there, um, <laughs> I've learned this lesson. All good things can be co-opted by our sinful propensity to say, look at me. All good things, all good things can be co-opted by my sinful nature, by your sinful nature, to become something where we would say, look at me. Consider all the good things. We're told in Scripture that God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he, he created Eve, and then he endorsed this institution called marriage that is beautiful between man and woman. It's beautiful. But even something as beautiful and God-designed as marriage can become a sinful piece of pride. Look at my trophy wife. Look at how successful she is. Look at my trophy children. Children can become idols. When the home revolves around them and we champion them constantly at the cost of their own character and esteem. All good things can be co-opted by sin. Sports, the arts, music, even relationships that are good things can become sin. Let me give you a list of sinful opportunities that might not have hit your radar screen before. Again, these are sinful opportunities. How about teaching the Word of God? Leading a Bible study. Investing in someone one-on-one, -on -one, like a disciple-making relationship. Helping a family out that's in need. Praying publicly. Maybe you are even a part of a healing moment. Fasting. Giving. All these things 
are endorsed, spoken of, and affirmed in Scripture. But all of them can also be sin. You see, what you're going to discover as we go into the text today is that the spiritual leadership of the time of Christ had taken that which was good and made it something by which they beat their own chests, pumped themselves up, and esteemed themselves before others. And Jesus takes on three very pure, godly actions and exposes how the heart can make that which is good evil. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as do the hypocrites, uh, doing the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now we'll continue on in chapter 6 here in a moment, but let me begin with what I see here. So it says in verse 1, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, first statement, that if you're going to write notes down, I'd write this down. Public charity is a double-edged sword. Public charity is a double-edged sword. Now, why do I say it like that? When you hear that phrase, double-edged sword, it means it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And so it can be very successful and powerful to the good and it can be very powerful to the bad. It cuts both ways. You see, public charity, I believe, in Scripture is affirmed and practiced. It is likely and necessary. Jesus himself even modeled the idea of giving publicly. Consider the moment when he fed the 5,000. He did it publicly. It was a generous act. They were hungry. Even the disciples said, we should dismiss them so they can go home and eat. But Jesus wanted to take care of them, feed them, be generous to them. So he fed them, all 5,000 of them. It's a miraculous story. But definitely a charitable act done publicly. Then you have Zacchaeus' story. Zacchaeus being that tax collector who was wanting to see Jesus. It was coming down the street. And you see, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was... You've heard the song. Zacchaeus was short in stature, but he was also ruthless in action. He had robbed his fellow brethren, his fellow Hebrews. 
he had heard that there was a great teacher that was speaking to the tax collectors as if they were human beings. So, of course, he showed interest. After all, even in the inner circle of Jesus, one of those tax collectors was Matthew, a follower of Jesus. So Zacchaeus had hope. So he wanted to see, but the crowds were too many. So he gets up in that tree, and he's watching Jesus come up the street. Jesus sees him, sees Zacchaeus, and says, I want to go to your house, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus did not bat an eye. He gets out of the tree. He goes to his house, invites his friends. Jesus is there. Very little is said by Jesus. And Zacchaeus' heart is already being transformed. In fact, very little was said by Jesus, but just a few things, and immediately Zacchaeus realizes, I am a sinner. I need you. And that change of heart caused him to say something that was so radical. I'm going to go back and pay back everything I've ever stole from others. And I'm going to double it. Who knows how long he had been robbing from others. Could you imagine the amount of resources this would take? It was so profound, it made it into our scriptures. It's accounted for. It was a public gift out of a man whose heart had become broken. And out of brokenness became charitable. Not only paying back those, that which he owed and it stole, but giving more by double. How about the woman with two mites? Very public. There was an act of when you go to the temple courts that as you're coming in, there was a canister, much like what we do now, where you can come in and give your gifts. And that's what they did in the temple, and it was part of the practices. Jesus even affirmed it and tells a story that as rich people were coming through, they would make sure that they wouldn't use paper. Coins are better. And the sound of a big coin that's worth a lot hitting the, that canister is significant. I bet if you and I were to listen to a quarter falling into a plate, we could identify it and compare and decide which is the quarter and which is the penny. So imagine people dropping in big chunks of change. Then this woman who is extremely poor drops in two mites, the smallest of coins. Click, click. In God's ears, that rang loud. To everybody else, they would look around like, wow, that was nothing. But Jesus praised that woman for giving those two mites because it was all she had. Whereas others just gave portions. Don't you love how multi-billion dollar companies give big checks to charitable organizations in front of big crowds at baseball stadiums and the, and the check is for $10,000? Now, if I gave $10,000, that would be something. That would be painful. But for a multi-billion dollar organization, a $10,000 gift is like tossing a quarter in the bucket. But they announce it with big printed checks. Giving is a good thing. And I'm sure those organizations that are receiving it are thankful for it. But they're letting the world know, we're good people. 
We give a lot. So buy our product. Let's turn it around spiritually. Giving is required. Giving is encouraged. We give 10%. That's what it states is, of course, what we're to give. But then when we give generously, we go beyond that. But do we announce it? Do we make sure that it's seen? Who's the audience when you give? Consider the early church. Acts chapter 4. A moment happens where Barnabas who's so moved by what God is doing in their midst, they're starting to realize, they're talking about, it's like, we've got all these people that are now growing. This church had grown by thousands. I mean, after all, it says in Acts chapter 2, they grew by several thousand in one day. And we complain when we grow a church that's medium-sized, a larger church, over three or four years. People are like, I don't like what it's become. Imagine a small, fledgling church becoming... 3,000 in one day. One day. But God was doing something in their midst. And they wanted to meet the needs of these people who were struggling to pay their bills. Because the Romans were fleecing the people. The tax collectors were fleecing the people. So what did they do? They came up with the idea, let's sell some of our land and help pay for the poor and needy. It says at the end of chapter 4 and verse 36 that Barnabas went forward after having sold land, gave it so that the apostles could disperse it. This was infirmed and encouraged. In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira do the exact same thing. They sell a piece of property and they bring a portion of those funds and lay it at the apostles' feet for it to be dispersed. But this one wasn't praised. In fact, God was angry. You see, Ananias and Sapphira were part of the church. They likely saw how much honor Barnabas received by having done that which God put upon his heart. Barnabas wasn't about the attention. He did something sacrificial. He gave. And then when people were impressed by it and it caused a movement, Ananias and Sapphira was like, we should do it. So that people can see that we're also like Barnabas. So they go sell a piece of the property. They get a good sum of money for it. Wow, that's an awful lot of money. I, we didn't expect to sell it for quite so much. Let's keep a part of it back and then we'll give some to the apostles' feet. So they gave, trying to look like Barnabas. They didn't make it out of that day alive. God was so angry with them. So public giving is not the enemy. The enemy is what's in the heart and mind. Who's your audience? Who are you giving for? Who do you want to see get the glory? Stuart Briscoe, a minister in England, said this. He goes, no, Jesus does not reject public piety. He is rejecting public hypocrisy. The falsely motivated act that seeks to give glory to the actor rather than God. Let me point something out in this text. Does Jesus say in this text, do not give publicly? Look what it says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others 
to be seen by them. Be careful not to practice. So it's not, do not give publicly. It's be careful when you practice giving publicly that you're not doing it to be seen by them. Now, we've talked often as we teach on Sunday mornings that often when we see, read this in the English, uh, many words, a phrase, can actually be just one word in the Greek. So our ancient manuscripts are primarily out of the Greek here. And in this phrase, to be seen by them, comes from the same root word we get the word theater. So let's read that with this new lens of thought. Jesus speaking. Be careful when you practice your acts of righteousness. In this case, giving. Be careful that you don't do it as means of being on a stage. As a means of performing. Be careful, Jesus says. I mean, think about it. Who's on a stage right now? I am. So if I'm listening to Jesus correctly and I listen in hard... I've got a pretty strong warning shot coming my way. Be careful that you do not act in such a way that you're performing or to be seen by you here. Now, I recognize you are seeing me right now, but I am not doing this to be seen where I am the object. We know in the book of James that it says, none of you should be so quick to want to be the teacher. If you think that being teacher is glorious, God says you need to be careful because if you teach in error, you're guilty of leading many astray. So therefore, don't wish to be the teacher. Go so, go there with fear and caution. So in this alarm, if you will, from Jesus, it's not saying stop doing things publicly that show that God has transformed you. I mean, out of the abundance of what God was doing in his heart, Barnabas gave. But his audience wasn't Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira did the exact same thing as Barnabas, but the difference was they did it so that they could be seen. And God despised it because they wanted the glory for themselves instead of God getting the glory for what he was doing in the life of Barnabas. Let's continue on because it's not just giving that can go astray and become a sinful act if done in the wrong manner. It's other things such as prayer. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not pray like the hypocrites for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they will be heard because of their many words. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So let me give a thought to this before expounding further. Public praying can glorify God or it can discourage 
others. All right. Anybody scratching their head a little bit? Public praying can glorify God or it can discourage others. Let me elaborate by asking a few questions. Does the location matter to you when you pray? You know, it says here the hypocrites, they love to pray standing in the synagogues, on the street corners, blah, 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 right? Does the location matter to pray when you pray? The head of the table, the front of a family gathering, called out in a circle of believers who are maybe studying the word. Does the location matter when you pray? How about this question? Who are you thinking of when you pray? When you're praying, are you thinking about how others are receiving and thinking about your prayer? Like, oh, that was good. That was really good. Oh, oh, wow. God will be impressed by that phrase. Who are you thinking of when you're praying? Who's the audience? How about this question? Does your language and length of prayer take on an alternate personality when you pray? Another head scratcher, right? Let me help you out because you're going to resonate real quick. Have you heard somebody pray where all of a sudden they start praying like they're reading the King James Bible? I grew up where that was the, when people prayed on Sunday morning, they used words I never heard them say the rest of the week. Hallowed God, I love you, thee, thou, art. And I'm like, as a young man, young kid, hearing all this, like, I don't know what those words mean. They take on this whole new life. And I'm like, I know that person. They don't talk like that any time during the week. And then their prayers get really long. So in the church I grew up in, a church of about 100 people, they would have this time of prayer in the moment. And whoever they would have pray from the church, come up, would pray really long. And as a 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, it got really long. And I know some of those people, some of them didn't even know what they were saying when they were praying that. Because they were using words they don't normally use, and they were losing track of thought. But it was kind of required that you're supposed to hit five to seven minutes on the length scale in praying. So let me go back to my initial statement. Public praying can glorify God or it can discourage others. Why do I say that? It's because as a young man being taught under that kind of a construct, when asked to pray publicly as I got into high school or as I got into college, I was like, oh, no, I, I can't, I don't, I don't pray very well. I, I'm not equipped to do that. It's interesting that when we pray as a staff, or we pray in groups, we, we regularly say, even before we start our services, we have a worship team, we're up here praying. I will ask somebody to close us out. After several have prayed, I want somebody to close us out. And sometimes when I ask that, the person looks extremely alarmed, like, don't ask me. I, I, I don't pray very well. In their mind, that's what's going on. How did that get there? How does it get there that a believer would say, I don't pray very well? It's because 
They've been conditioned and modeled that unless they pray under an English translation that's old and have an accent that God apparently uses, and if they don't go lengthy, then it's not a prayer worthy of public expression. So a lot of us here in this room right now would be horrified if I asked you to come up here and close our service in prayer. Some of it would be the stage, but a lot of it would be, I don't pray very well. And if that's your thought, I encourage you to consider, how did you learn that? Because what is prayer? It is communicating between you and God. And God loves a sincere heart, not about the words or the length or, or what accent you use. It's about the prayer and the heart behind it. Consider Luke chapter 18. Keep your finger in Matthew 6. I just want to real quick go to Luke 18 to make a point that Jesus even makes. So go in your Bibles to the right just a little bit. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus is telling a story of two people who went into the temple to pray, and they're praying publicly. So verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector that's to my right. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I, I get. But the tax collector... Stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, Jesus said. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To which then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the prayer that God affirms was simple. It was a tax collector using the language he knew, speaking from the sincerity of his heart that he needed help. He knew he was a sinner and said, God, have mercy on me. The glory was about God. The heart was towards God. In the same space, publicly praying, we have one that is counting off the list as to why God should hear him out. He gives a tenth, probably publicly. He fasts twice a week, probably lets everybody know that. Compares himself to other people, gives a list, probably don't even have the full list here. Jesus is just telling a story and probably could have gone on because likely it was a long prayer. Why did the Pharisee do that? Because there was another ulterior audience. And the glory was about himself. When he did talk to God, it was, God, you must listen to me because look at what I have done. Look what I'm doing and look at how much better I am than the person over here. So therefore, God, you must. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16, Jesus brings in one more spiritual practice that got co-opted by sinful nature. It says, when you fast, 
Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others so that, that you are fasting. But only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting. A spiritual practice that actually is not about attracting the attention of God or about the attracting the attention of others. Fasting is about aligning the heart. You're probably thinking, wait a second, you know, when you fast, you should be praying to God. Well, yes, but you're not fasting so that God's attention goes to you. You're not fasting so that it's like, hey, God, look, I've been fasting for three days now. You've got to hear what I'm about to say. That's not the purpose of fasting. Now, fasting is about the recalibration of your heart and your mind. It's meant to cause a shift in the way you are acting and behaving so that you can pray to God, so that your attention's towards God. It's not about getting God's attention. Pharisees, as that prayer said of that Pharisee that compared himself to the tax collector, he said, I fast twice a week. Did you know that the Pharisees fasted on two particular days? Monday and Thursday. Monday and Thursday. So, you can imagine how this goes. Somebody's walking along the street. Hi, Fred. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Monday. I can tell by your face. Sorry. It's Monday. Because they didn't clean up. They're a little disheveled. They're gaining pity from those around. They're showing that they are more righteous than others, that they're actually fasting twice a week, every week. How impressive. God must be giving his attention to their prayers. No, fasting's purpose was to have the hunger pangs that we feel by going through withdrawal to remind us of our need to be dependent upon something greater. God. Whenever I fast, it is to remind me every time I feel that which I'm withdrawing from and it's a reminder to say I need something greater than that issue or that thing I'm fasting from. I need God in my life. It's not about like, God, I'm fasting right now so that you will actually hear this prayer over other prayers I've prayed. That's the most foolish idea when it comes to fasting, but yet it's the most common prevailing thought when people pray. We really want God to answer this prayer that we as a church are doing. So let's fast and pray, and then God must. In reality, when we're called to gather together as a fast collectively, it's about making sure that we understand fully our need for God. Now, if you're sitting there and you've been paying attention to the scriptures, I've withheld Jesus' advice about giving, prayer, and fasting. I want to address that now. Jesus' advice in defeating the sinful natures of deceit with giving was don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing so that it can be done in secret. And you've got to be thinking, how is it possible that I do something with my right hand and my left hand not know about when the brain's in the middle telling both what to do what they're doing? 
You need to understand that that phrase is something from out of their culture that says, don't keep an account. Where you give with your left and the right is writing it down. See, look what I've done. So they would understand that give because God's given to you. Just give. Let it be an overflow of the life. Don't make it an account where you start puffing yourself up. With prayer, he says, if you struggle to pray publicly because you think it's about you and you have a hard time praying and not thinking about how others are thinking of your prayer, or that, wow, that's a real impressive prayer that you just prayed. If that's where your mind tends to go, Jesus says, go to the closet. Verse 6, go to the closet and pray there. But he doesn't say to do that at the exclusion of never praying publicly. It's when you're struggling, go to the closet Pray. Spend time alone with God. Get your heart right with him. And then praying will become more free wherever you go. And then lastly, with fasting, talking about those who just made sure that everybody knew that they were fasting, he said, I would say this, we're taught to stay fresh, not depressed. Stay fresh, not depressed. Keeping it as a practice for creating awareness of spiritual priorities. So how do we walk away from this text today? of Matthew 6, talking about giving, praying, fasting, all good spiritual practices that somehow sin can enter in. So Jesus' aim for us is this. He wants to make sure that these things which are holy, righteous, and good stay good. Keeping good things, good things. And we do that by not robbing God of his glory. If you are doing anything that is spiritual, and you're starting to get a little bit prideful about how good you are at it, God says you will get rewarded. You will get rewarded and affirmed, but it's not going to be from him. Because you've chosen to give glory to yourself before men. You've robbed him of his glory. So therefore, fine. Your reward comes from elsewhere. Which then leads me to say, so we shouldn't rob God of his glory. But we also should not want to rob ourselves of his approval, God's approval and blessings. Whatever honor or affirmation we get from other people, is so short and abrupt. But when we're doing things with just the mindset of glorifying God and about his approval, we get that approval and blessing and affirmation for an eternity and a lifetime. Which then leads me to the title of the sermon today. To keep things that are good things, good things, by giving God the glory by seeking his approval and reward, the way that happens is when you desire the approval of one with the audience of one. The approval of one with the audience of one. Let's pray. There is one God and three persons. So, Father, I speak to you. To Son, I speak to you. And Holy Spirit, I speak to you. May you get the glory.
of any good things that happen in our lives. May your approval be enough that we wouldn't just be satisfied with a fleeting reward or affirmation here on this earth, but that we would be satisfied that any good thing that we do gives you glory and we are totally satisfied with your affirmation. So speak to our hearts now. May our hearts be purified and confront it for wherever maybe spiritual piety has become sin. That it can be cleansed and redeemed and then made anew that we can do these things out of a pure heart. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please? Well, in response this morning, might we just humble ourselves before the Lord and seek him and seek his heart.
So one of the things that I think happens out of this text is some people start shying away from any example or modeling of doing good things. It was Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our God in heaven. So it's the double-edged sword. We are called to live these things out publicly but we got to make sure that our audience is one and we're seeking the approval of one. But it's also for the sake of others to see where our lives are aligned. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, We do all things to the glory of God, seeking the good of others so that they may be saved. So we let it be on display, not to say, look at me, to be seen by them, but to say, look at God. Look what he's done in all of us. Having said that, I want to encourage you, if you would like to pray with someone, talk to God together for a little bit, we're going to have people in the encounter room, which is to my left, that would be glad to do so and praying with you. But to those of us that aren't going to go there and pray right now or just want to encounter God, my encouragement to you is this is to go before God and say, Lord, is there anything in my life where I've made this spiritual act that's a good thing 
become something where I say, look at me. And then give it over to him. Make it a good thing once again. Because it's going to the right place and the approvals from the right person. So in Jesus' name, I release you to be the light of the world that glorifies the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.